Well, this morning we are, as I mentioned, going to be taking communion together. And uh, since we got a lot of uh, positive feedback about doing communion at the end of the service, like we did last month, we are going to do that again today and maybe from now on. Uh, I know it might seem a bit abrupt to have the sermon at the beginning of the service. At least it feels that way for me. It's like, whoa, it's like I'm already preaching. I don't have to wait till the music and all that other stuff, right? Um, But it does seem to better prepare our hearts to come before the Lord's table, especially if the text being exposited focuses on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the case this morning, since we're going to be returning to our study of the book of Romans and looking at, and we're looking at a passage this morning that focuses on one of the most important and most interesting concepts about Christ that's mentioned in both the Old and New Testaments. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9, and we're going to be looking today at verses 30 to 33. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. Let me read it for us, and you can just follow along in your Bibles as I read. Paul said, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Father, we're grateful for uh, the opportunity to be together this morning, to enjoy fellowship together, getting to know one another better, serving one another better. And Lord, we're thrilled to be able to be back in the book of Romans today. Uh, It's been a while, and uh, I pray that you would Grant us grace as we get our minds back into uh, the flow of Paul's thoughts here, and uh, Lord, that you would help us to understand what Paul wrote here, and uh, that we would also uh, understand how it applies to our lives today. Lord, we know that your word presents Christ as a rock over which people stumble or on which they build their lives. And I pray that there would be no one here today who stumbles over Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, it's been about six weeks since I preached on Romans, and so it seems like a review is in order. And I want to remind you uh, where we're at here in the flow of this letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Rome. Um, If you remember, Paul spent the first eight chapters giving a detailed explanation of the doctrine of salvation, or as he called it, the gospel of God. That's how he opened up this letter in verse chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What is that gospel? Well, it's namely how God graciously makes guilty sinners right with him through faith alone in Christ alone. And that's why we chose this title 
the glorious gospel, how a gracious God makes guilty sinners right with him through faith in Jesus. I think that's an accurate um, summary of the entire book of Romans. The thesis or theme of Romans is found, of course, in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the what? The gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, and here's the key, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so that is the theme that he is about to expand or wants to expand this idea of justification or righteousness, being right with God on the basis of faith. He's gonna expand on that, describe that, explain that. But before he does that, he painted this horrific description of man's unrighteousness and how we all stand guilty before God and deserve nothing but his wrath. That's chapter one, verse 18, all the way to chapter three, verse 20, and so this bad news that we spent quite a while in, uh, talking about how the wrath of God is coming upon all men because they suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness, that, that, that was the, the, the setting, if you will, the backdrop for the heart or the core of this letter, which is the good news, actually the best news ever. I don't know why we just keep calling it the good news. It's not just good news, it's the best news ever, Right? And that is in chapter 3, verses 21 through 30. And, and again, if there was a, one text that, that would serve as the heartbeat of this letter, it is, it is right here in chapter 3, verse 21. Paul says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, i.e. both Jews and Gentiles uh, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. And so from the very beginning of this letter, you begin to, we begin to come across these references, uh, not just to justification by faith alone or God's righteousness through Christ, but these references to Jews and Gentiles, which is one of the underlying themes of this letter, the, the universal nature of the gospel and how it applies to all men, not just to the Jews, uh, but also to the Gentiles. But the question that we should ask ourselves 
and that I think the believers in Rome were asking themselves, if what Paul was writing about is true, that both Jews and Gentiles are saved in the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then why are there so few Jewish Christians? The majority of the believers in Rome were Gentiles. And so the natural question for them and the small number of Jewish converts was, so what's up with the Jews? What's up with Israel? Fast forward to chapters 9, 10, and 11, where Paul provides a much-needed clarification about how both the, the Jews and the Gentiles fit into God's overall plan of salvation. And this needed to be clarified for, for a number of reasons. First of all, this glorious gospel that Paul was describing in this letter seemed or could potentially seem inconsistent. Again, if Paul's gospel was to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles as Paul claimed, then why did most of the Jews reject the gospel and continue to do so to this day? Why were the churches in Rome and the churches in our day made up, are made up predominantly of Gentile converts rather than Jewish converts? Have you ever noticed that? I mean, by and large, this is a church full of Gentile believers. There's not a whole lot of Jewish believers, if any. What's up with that? If the gospel is first for the Jews and then the Gentiles. I mean, weren't the Jews God's chosen people? Weren't they the recipients of all the promises in the Old Testament that God made to Israel? Are those no longer applicable? Are they all null and void? Was God, is God done with Israel? Had he abandoned Israel? Had Israel been supplanted or replaced by the church? Are we the new Israel? And maybe most importantly, if God had failed to keep his promises to the Jews, then how could Paul guarantee that God would always be faithful to keep his promises to us as believers. Paul had just got done in chapter 8 telling us that nothing can ever separate those of us who have been chosen by God from God's love. That's Romans 8, verses 29 through 39. Well, if that's true, then what happened to God's chosen people, Israel? Why does it look like they have been separated from God's love? And so, really, the trustworthiness of God's character was at stake here. And if you notice in chapter 9, verse 6, Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. He got done describing his burden, this great burden he has, the sorrow in his heart that the majority of his kinsmen are on their way to hell. And even though they were the ones who had all these promises and all these blessings, and so he poses the question, as it were, but is it not, it's not as though the word of God has failed. 
And so Paul began to defend the character of God here by showing that his dealings with Israel in the past, right now in the present, and also in the future when we get to chapter 11, actually magnified God's attributes. In other words, proved the trustworthiness, the faithfulness of God. And, and the one attribute that, that is highlighted the, the, the most throughout the history of Israel is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. And in Romans 9, verses 6 through 29, the section that we looked at uh, for about four weeks, um, Paul gave the clearest and strongest defense of the doctrine of election found anywhere in God's word. And his main point, I think, was that Israel's rejection of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, didn't take God by surprise. It was all part of God's plan, sovereign plan. God never guaranteed the salvation of all the Israelites, but rather he sovereignly selected which one of them would be beneficiaries of all his promises to Israel. He chose a remnant. And he's gonna mention that again in chapter 11, verse five. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, Grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Now back in chapter 9, you may remember that Paul used examples from Israel's history to make his point that God's plan of salvation has always been solely based on his sovereign will, meaning his choice of who is saved is uninfluenced and unprompted by anything in the individuals. That's what we mean by unconditional election. God did not select us to be saved based on who we are or what we did or would do, but based entirely on his unearned, undeserved kindness and favor. And so he mentions how God chose Isaac, not Ishmael, and how God chose Jacob, not Esau. How God had mercy on Moses but hardened Pharaoh's heart. He also describes God as the potter and us as the clay. In other words, God can do whatever he pleases with us and we have no right to question him. Which is our natural reaction to what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 9, but look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? And so Paul knew the natural objection to the doctrine of election would be if God has already determined our destiny before time began, then how can he hold us responsible if we fail to believe in him? Which by the way, at face value, I think appears like a legitimate question, but based on Paul's response to it, uh, it reveals an arrogant, defiant heart because what this question implies is, is that God is responsible for our lost condition. It's really his fault if we end up in hell. I mean, if we're not one of God's elect, then there's nothing we can do to change our fate. 
And of course, this is a fatalistic view of God's sovereignty. And I think this is probably the main reason why so many have a hard time accepting the fact that God is completely sovereign in the process of salvation is because it kind of seems like we're nothing but robots, puppets or pawns in some divinely ordained, orchestrated cosmic production. And Paul knew that. And so he followed up his in-depth instruction on the sovereignty of God and salvation by reminding his readers of the responsibility of man in salvation. And starting here in verse 30, that was all for free, okay? That was all background, that was all review, right? Starting here in verse 30, all the way through the end of chapter 10, Paul made it clear that Israel was still responsible or accountable for her rejection of the gospel. In other words, God is not at fault for not choosing all the Jews to be saved, but it is the Jews who were at fault for not believing that a person is saved by placing their faith in Christ's work rather than relying on their own good works. So the fact that the Jews make up such a small percentage of God's people in the present church age in which we live is not because they're unelect, but because they're unbelievers. And so, as you would imagine, Paul faithfully presented the other side of the coin when it comes to the doctrine of salvation. And uh, this may not come as a welcome relief as it would have if I preached this the Sunday after I preached the, four, the fourth sermon on unconditional election, right? Four, four weeks, we talked about election, 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 election. What about man's responsibility? What about, you know, our free will, our volition? Well, here's Paul, again, careful not to emphasize God's sovereignty to the exclusion of man's responsibility. He kept them in perfect balance as we should. Why? Since they're both taught in Scripture. And we mentioned this uh, when we were talking about uh, election, is that from a human perspective, there is a tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. They seem like two equally true truths, not, not even a tension as much as a contradiction. But I think we can learn a lesson from Paul here in how he moved abruptly but seamlessly from one to the other and said nothing about how these two perspectives are to be merged together in our minds. He simply allowed them to stand side by side in this letter without trying to resolve or reconcile the tension or apparent contradiction. Warren Wearsby is helpful in his commentary. He said this, quote, no one will deny that there are many mysteries connected with divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Nowhere does God ask us to choose between these two truths because they both come from God and are part of God's plan. They do not compete, they cooperate. The fact that we cannot fully understand then uh, their work, how they work together, does not deny the fact that they do. 
And if you haven't already done this, you need to put divine sovereignty and human responsibility into the same bin that you put the Trinity and you put Christ's deity and humanity. There are, there are some theological conundrums or enigmas that when you read scripture, it's just like, how, do I under, how am I to understand? It doesn't make sense to me. How can God be three persons and yet one? How can, how can Jesus be 100% God and 100% man? That make, that's, that's illogical. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, throw it into the theological conundrum bin, okay, alongside divine sovereignty and man's responsibility. And then live with it. Learn to live with the tension. Just learn to live with it. Someone suggested that we should rise each morning as an Arminian and work to spread the gospel as if it all depends on us. And then retire each night as a Calvinist knowing that it all depends on God's sovereignty. Tell me how that goes. Talk about a schizophrenic, right? A split personality. I also want to mention at this point, because I didn't say it in those four messages on the doctrine of election, that, that the, the Bible never says to try to figure out whether or not we're one of God's elect. It simply commands us to what? Repent and believe. And presents the offer of salvation to whoever wants it. And Paul's about to say that in chapter 10, verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I emphasize that because some people sadly miss understand or misapply the doctrine of election and, and they, 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 they're stuck or frozen in their unbelief because they assume that they can't do anything about it if God hasn't chosen them. Well, it's only after we repent of our sin and place our faith in Christ that we can have the confidence that we are one of God's elect. Peter, after listing a bunch of moral attributes or spiritual attributes, characteristics, he goes on to say this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble, for in this way, the entrance in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So how do you know you're one of God's elect? It's not until after you're saved and God begins transforming your life and producing in these, these fruits, these changes in your character. Paul saw these changes in the Thessalonians. If you remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says this, I love this. We give thanks to God always. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. In other words, I saw 
the transformation. I saw how you responded to the gospel, how you, how you turned turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. I saw your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. In other words, as Jesus said, by their fruits, you'll know them, right? Paul says, I know, I know that you're one of God's elect just by how you responded to the gospel. And so again, we said this before, election is the family secret, right? It's something that you learn after, something you learn about after you get saved, after you start studying the Bible and, and you're like, oh, wow, this is all over the place. How cool is that? But it's not something that should lock you up as an unbeliever and go, well, if God's going to save me, he's going to save me. There's nothing I can do about it, so I'll just kind of wait around to, until he zaps me. I love what Charles Spurgeon said in his morning and evening little daily devotional on the morning of July 17th. And Spurgeon was a very outspoken Calvinist, someone who held strongly to the doctrines of grace. He said this, quote, many persons want to know their election before they look to Christ, but they can't learn it thus. It is only to be discovered by looking unto Jesus. If you desire to ascertain your own election after the following manner, shall you assure your heart before God? Do you feel yourself to be a lost, guilty sinner? Go straightway to the cross of Christ and tell Jesus so and tell him that you have read in the Bible, him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. Tell him that he has said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Look to Jesus and believe on him and you shall make proof of your election directly for so surely as thou believest thou art elect. If you will give yourself wholly up to Christ and trust him, then you are one of God's chosen ones. But if you stop and say, I want to know first whether I'm elect, you ask what you know not. Go to Jesus, be you never so guilty just as you are. Leave all curious inquiry about election alone. Go straight to Christ and hide in his wounds and you shall know your election. The assurance of the Holy Spirit shall be given to you so that you shall be able to say, I know whom I believed and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him. Christ was at the everlasting council. He can tell you whether you were chosen or not. In other words, Christ was back there when God made that decision. Christ can tell you whether you were chosen or not, but you cannot find it out any other way. Go and put your trust in him and his answer will be, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, have I drawn thee. And then he closes with this line. Spurgeon says, there will be no doubt about his having chosen you when you have chosen him. Pretty simple, huh? So all that to say, Paul comes to verse 30 and says, what shall we say then? And this was a familiar rhetorical question that we should be used to by now because he 
asks that same question in chapter, beginning in chapter 4, beginning in chapter 6, uh, chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 14. This was, this was Paul's way of summarizing what he had just got done saying or signaling uh, and or signaling the start of a new section. And so Paul was now returning to his original subject, which he spent the first eight chapters explaining how a person is, is justified or declared righteous or made right with God. And what we see in these verses is there's simply two kinds of righteousness. There's only, there are only two kinds of righteousness. There's God's righteousness and there's your righteousness or referred to in scripture as self-righteousness. In other words, there's only, there's only two ways to seek salvation. Two ways to get to heaven. There's God's way or there's our way. You can try to save yourself or you can admit that you can't save yourself and trust God to do it through Christ. And so Paul contrasted the salvation of the Gentiles and the judgment of the Jews. Notice he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Gentiles or non-Jews in general are not known for pursuing righteousness. In fact, they are experts at pursuing unrighteousness. Look at uh, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. This was Peter's description of unbelieving Gentiles. 1 Peter 4, 3, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, and all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. So Paul, Peter uses the same analogy or, or I guess picture here of, of pursuing something or running after something. That's what Paul said here, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, that word pursue means to run swiftly after something, to, to earnestly seek some desired goal. And so they weren't pursuing righteousness. They weren't running after righteousness. They weren't trying to get right with God. They could care less about God. And Paul uses this phrase, even the righteous, which is by faith. Again, the righteousness that God provides a person who trusts solely in the work of his son Jesus for their salvation. That's Romans 1.17. The just shall live by faith. But then notice the contrast, verse 31. But Israel, on the other hand, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at the law. So while the Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness, they were off doing their own thing, pursuing sensuality, pursuing all sorts of other immorality and sin, could care less about God, being right with God. The Jews, man, they were, 
they were the older brother who stayed home faithfully working for dad, right, while the prodigal son went off and did his thing and had his fun. They thought then and now, even to this day, believe that they can earn God's favor by keeping all the rules and regulations and maintaining all the traditions and celebrations that God gave Moses in the Old Testament. Pursuing a law of righteousness, they did not arrive at the law. I've said this before, but God did intend the nation of Israel to keep the Mosaic law. He didn't just give it uh, to them to disregard. But the main reason that he gave it to them was to show them that they couldn't keep it. And to point them to the only one who ever perfectly kept the law, which is who? Jesus. So that they would rely on his righteousness rather than their own self-righteousness in order to be justified and get to heaven. If um, 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4 is, a, is an accurate description of, of, of the life of a Gentile, I think um, Luke chapter 18 is an accurate description of the life of a Jew. This is the, the story of the Pharisee and the publican. This is Luke 18, 9. And Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed them others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. So again, here was a, an example of someone who was trusting in themselves that they were righteous. He was parading his self-righteousness, thinking that was how to earn God's favor. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went to, the, to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, being justified or attaining righteousness on our own requires that we keep the law perfectly. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10, for as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And then James says, Pretty much the same thing, James chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of what? Of the whole thing. So back in Romans 9, what Paul is saying here is that, that, that the Jews were and still are chasing an impossible goal. Why? Because they'll never be good enough to get to heaven on their own. The standard to get into heaven is what? Perfection. And so he says they did not arrive. 
They pursued a law of righteousness. They did not arrive at that law. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. The Jews arrogantly refused to humbly admit that they couldn't earn salvation by their own good works. And they failed to trust in the work of Christ that he accomplished through his exemplary life and substitutionary death. Paul continually reiterated this throughout his letters, Galatians 2.16. He said, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Again, this is the main point that Paul has been making in the first eight chapters of Romans, that we're all sinners who've fallen short of God's standard of perfection. We have no other way of getting to heaven than by being robed in the righteousness of Christ that God provides all those who stop trying to work their way to heaven and simply believe in Jesus. And because he's already discussed this in detail, he only makes a passing reference here to the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. But don't miss the irony. The ones who weren't pursuing salvation found it, and the ones who were pursuing salvation didn't find it. One commentator I read described this irony in an interesting way. He said this would be comparable to a professional gold miner going to the field with all the latest high-tech prospecting tools, laboring diligently according to form and finding nothing, and a lazy, drunken town bum stubbing his toe on a rock in the trail, which turns out to be part of a mother lode that makes him fabulously wealthy. (laughs) One was searching for everything, but found nothing. The other was searching for nothing, but found everything. Well, Paul concluded this chapter with an unforgettable image from the Old Testament to explain, ultimately, why the Jews rejected Christ. Notice the end of verse 32. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. If the scene that Paul had in his mind, and it seems that it would be in his mind of someone running, he's been talking about pursuing something, running hard after something. So if if that's the picture of someone running, then then the picture is that they tripped over a hurdle and they never reached the finish line. They just went flat on their face. And Paul used this analogy a number of other times in his letters, 1 Corinthians one twenty three. but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a, what, you remember? A stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Through the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. 
Galatians 5.11, but if I still preach circumcision, then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Then, then in other words, if you, could have, if you could keep earning your way to heaven through circumcision and doing all these things, then really you wouldn't be offended by the cross and me telling you that that's the only way you could be saved. Notice verse 33 here. He says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then he combined two verses from the book of Isaiah, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. You may want to look back there with me. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14 Isaiah prophesied, then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. And then Isaiah 28, Isaiah 28, verse 16, this is where Paul's getting this from. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed, or another way of saying that would be not be ashamed. You're not going to regret it if you believe in this stone. Again, what was the question that Paul set out to answer in chapter 9? Has God's word failed? Sure looks like it. And so he quoted from the Old Testament to once again show that God had anticipated that the Jews would reject Jesus because he didn't conform to their expectations of what the Messiah was to be in their minds. And this is exactly what Isaiah predicted would happen. Peter, if you remember, quoted these same two passages from Isaiah. Notice 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That phrase, rock of offense, stone of offense, is the, the Greek word scandalon or stumbling block. It's where we get our English word scandalous, right? I don't know if any of you are Michael Card fans, dating myself here. One of the guys that I used to love to listen to growing up. And uh, one of my favorite songs that he wrote was called Scandalon. Listen to the lyrics. The seers and the prophets as foretold in long ago that the long-awaited one would make man stumble, that they were looking for a king to conquer and to kill, would have, who'd ever thought he'd be so meek and humble? He will be the truth that will offend them one and all, a stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And many will be broken so that he can make them whole and many will be crushed 
and lose their own soul. Along the path of life, there lies a stubborn scandal on, and all who come this way must be offended. To some, he is a barrier. To other, he's the way. For all should know the scandal of believing. Peter brought this to bear right after Christ was crucified and resurrected and ascended back to heaven in Acts chapter 4, verse 10. They were arrested for healing a guy and were asked to give an account. Hey, how did you do this? And in Acts chapter 4, verse 10, Peter says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, God gave you the most important stone, the, the cornerstone, the, 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 the most important piece of the building. Everything else gets built off the cornerstone. And you didn't like it. You said, what's this? And you rejected it. You killed it. You destroyed it. You crucified your Messiah. And this stone that you rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. And you know that Paul mentioned how Jesus became the foundation of the church, 1 Corinthians 3.11, Ephesians 2.20. And Jesus himself applied this stone image to himself. Look at Matthew 21. Matthew 21, after telling this parable of the two sons, the one who said, yeah, I'll go, I'll go into the field and work and never did. And then the one who said he wouldn't actually went. And then the parable of the landowner, the guy left and uh, left some guys in charge of his field. And he sent some guys back to, to, to get the harvest and they just killed them all. And finally he said, I'm gonna send my son and surely they'll respect my son. They'll honor my son. And the workers said, well, now this is his son. If we kill his son, then this will become ours. And so in verse 39, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? In other words, Jesus said, hey, so what's gonna happen when the guy comes back? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And Jesus is like, exactly. <laughs> and you are those wretches that God will bring to a wretched end. Verse 42, Jesus said, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it, i.e. the Gentiles. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. You can keep beating your head against me all you want, but you're gonna be broken. You're gonna be broken to pieces. You're gonna be shattered. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. 
In other words, you could arrogantly defy Christ and you'll be broken to pieces or you could just be oblivious to Christ and could care less about Christ and guess what? You're still gonna have to deal with him because he's coming back. And Daniel chapter two, if you remember in that great dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interpreted in Daniel chapter two, verse 34, he describes this rock that comes racing from heaven and destroys all the kingdoms of the earth. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. In other words, it was just scattered. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but that stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Talking about the return of Christ. And so you be, might be sitting here this morning going, yeah, whatever. Can you get over, get this thing over with? I got things to do. You care less about Christ. Well, listen, someday Christ is gonna be, come racing back from heaven like this stone hurtling out of the sky. And he's gonna crush those that have not repented and believed in him. So I guess we could just picture in our mind this huge road. And in the middle of that road is this massive boulder representing Christ. And and all of humanity is streaming toward that boulder. And those who are pursuing salvation by their own good works will crash into Christ and be destroyed. But on the other hand, those who pursue salvation by faith alone in Christ alone will rest on Christ. And Christ will serve as the foundation on which they'll build their life. The question is, who is Christ to you? Is he a stone to trip over or is he a rock to trust in? Let's pray. I want to invite the men who are going to serve us communion this morning to come and as I pray, Father, we thank you for loving us enough to send your son to this earth to live the life that we all failed to live and to die the death that we all deserve to die so that we wouldn't have to strive to somehow earn your favor through our own goodness, our own good works, our own effort. But you tell tell us to simply, humbly admit that we're guilty sinners who deserve to die and go to hell. But to believe, place our faith in Christ and what he did for us, his work, not our own, for our salvation. Lord, we're so grateful that none of us will 
ever get to heaven with some smug look on our face as if we were smart enough or clever enough to figure this all out on our own. But we'll be there standing with a look of wonder, a a, a look of amazement on our face that how did we get here? Because we know that we didn't earn it and that we didn't deserve it. And so Lord, as we contemplate all this during our time of communion together, I pray, Lord, that if there is someone here who, who has up to this point in their life stumbled over Christ, they've not uh, repented of their sin, they've not been willing to admit that they're a sinner, they're, they've not been willing to admit that they could never be good enough to get to heaven on their own, that today they would humble themselves and take the first step for you, towards you, which is simply admitting that there's nothing they can do to save themselves. But it's only through faith in Christ and that you would grant them repentance, you'd grant them faith to believe in him alone for their salvation. And Lord, for those of us who embrace that, who, who trust in Christ alone and are building our lives on him as the perfect foundation that our hearts would be filled with gratitude, that we would also examine our lives to see if there's any ways that we have dishonored you, disobeyed you, somehow broken fellowship with you, disrupted our fellowship with you, and that we would confess those sins this morning and be restored to a right relationship with you. Thank you for ordaining this ceremony, this celebration for us to do on a regular basis. I pray that it would accomplish its purposes for why you ordained it in this place today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.